I honestly didn't know that the Oscar-winning author Matthew McConaughey, or actor rather, Matthew McConaughey, was from Uvalde, Texas. He was at the White House today to talk about gun control. He's someone who he self-admittedly grew up uh, learning the power, of, to revere the power and capacity of the gun, but he's been horrified uh, by the murder of 19 school kids and two teachers in his hometown. Uh, he met with the president today, with President Biden. They talked a bit about gun control. Here's what he had to say uh, after that meeting. We need to invest in mental health care. We need safer schools. We need to restrain sensationalized media coverage. We need to restore our family values. We need to restore our American values. And we need responsible gun ownership. Responsible gun ownership. We need background checks. We need to raise the minimum age to purchase an AR-15 rifle to 21. We need a waiting period for those rifles. We need red flag laws and consequences for those who abuse them. These are reasonable, practical, tactical regulations to our nation, states, communities, schools, and homes. Responsible gun owners are fed up with the Second Amendment being abused and hijacked by some deranged individuals. These regulations are not a step back. They're a step forward for a civil society and and the Second Amendment. Matthew McConaughey there. As the debate over stricter gun control laws go on, the Supreme Court is about to issue its most significant Second Amendment ruling in more than a decade. With more on that, joining me now is Joseph Bloker. He's a law professor at Duke University and co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I guess it's not unusual, but I guess we do pay more attention when there's been a series of very high profile and very tragic incidents. Uh, We're seeing more mass shootings again over the past weekend. Uh, Is there any chance this time that this may prompt lawmakers to do something? Well, you know, we've seen the rug pulled out before, um, so it could happen again. But it does seem that we are closer to major federal legislation on guns than we have been since the aftermath aftermath of the uh, Sandy Hook massacre uh, almost 10 years ago. Um, Back then, the major push was for uh, expansion of the background check program, Um, came pretty close in the Senate, but never made it to a vote. Um, Now there are a few different proposals advancing in Congress, um, some of which might see the light of day. One thing we saw last time and we also saw in the aftermath of the Parkland massacre five years ago is um, uh, our initiatives at the state level. And I think we might see more of that as well. It's not just the federal government. In fact, most gun regulation in the United States is done at the state and local level. And we're seeing some developments there, too. So what are some of the areas where lawmakers are pursuing uh, different legislation that we could see? What sort of what sort of measures might be put into place or at least agreed upon? Uh, There are a lot of things floating out there. I'd say that the two most prominent, maybe most promising are, again, expansion of background checks. Um, Currently under U.S. federal law, only licensed firearms dealers have to perform a background check on a person they're transferring a gun to, to make sure that that person doesn't have a disqualifying felony or disqualifying mental illness. And so if a person is not a licensed dealer, they don't have to do a background check and the proposal would expand the number of people who have to actually perform the checks overwhelmingly popular with the American people. Three quarters, 90% of American people support this, of of, of people in the United States support this. So uh, lots of political support for that. Um, Another prominent proposal, um, which has gained a lot of traction at the state level, uh, is the adoption of what are called red flag laws or extreme risk orders or extreme risk protection orders. And what those do is allow guns to be temporarily taken away 
from a person who a judge has determined present an immediate risk of harm to themselves or others. So a person who's exhibiting suicidal ideation or threats, uh, something like that. They become very popular at the state level. Some push now for either adoption of a federal law or at least federal support for states um, to do uh, to, to adopt these laws further. And some proposals too to raise the age uh, of for buying certain kinds of guns or again to restrict certain classes of weapons like what are often called assault weapons or high capacity magazines. So it's really a, sort of a suite of proposals moving uh, moving forward. And I think that this coming week we'll get a little more clarity about which of the ones people are prioritizing. I would imagine, given the circumstances in both Buffalo recently and in Uvalde, that that all those elements come into play in both those uh, horrific cases. I think that's exactly right. And really, it, sometimes people talk about the gun, uh, the gun debate in the United States as if it's kind of an either or, you know, either for gun regulation or you're not. Um, and I always try to re- resist that question or resist that framing, because really, when we're talking about gun regulation, there's any number of different kinds of interventions that could make a difference. Um, and I think to ask, you know, would this law have stopped this shooting is usually the wrong question. Um, you know, usually it's the question you should be asking is, could this law save some lives? Um, and background checks, to take an example, probably about three million people have been denied guns as a result of failed background checks since the Brady Act went into effect at the federal level in 1994. We don't know how many of those people would have gone on to commit crimes with those weapons, but we do know that the majority of them who were denied their guns were denied because they were either a disqualified felon or a fugitive from justice or a person suffering from mental illness or a person who committed a crime of domestic violence, right? That's a lot of potentially risky people who could not get guns. It's probably a lot of lives saved. So it's going to be, I think, a combination of of all these things. And it's usually, I think, uh, puts an unfair burden really uh, on the law to say, oh, could you have prevented this crime or the other crime? You know, crimes, crimes still happen. And we don't, we don't, we don't deregulate assault because people still commit assault. We don't deregulate murder because people still commit murder. And actually, you know, in these most recent mass shootings, it's notable, um, you know, the shooter waited until his 18th birthday until it was legal to buy the weapon that he went out to buy. I mean, perversely, he was following the law. I guess we never we never do know what crimes haven't been committed uh, due to laws already in place. You've said in the past the greatest obstacle to gun regulations in the U.S. is political, not judicial. Uh, Certainly as Canadians, it's always something that we look at. Um, Do you feel like the momentum has shifted a little bit this time? Is there sort of and we know it's popular publicly. uh, Do you feel there is sort of some shift in terms of, of, of politicians in the U.S. because of these incidents of late? I think, we're seeing, I think we're seeing sort of like different shifts at different levels. So what I think what we'll probably see, which is what we've already seen in the last five years, is a continuing divergence at the state level. Some states like New York and California, uh, big states, uh, will continue to regulate guns perhaps more stringently, at least as stringently as politics and courts will allow, whereas some other states, including Texas, also a big state, will probably further deregulate. Um, uh, maybe they'll adopt red flag laws. There, there's going to be a little bit of, you know, sort of, again, it's a suite of possible proposals here. Uh, But what we have seen at the state level is continuing divergence. What's really notable about the current moment is just how much pressure there seems to be in Washington. Um, You know, the last major federal gun law that was passed was passed in 2005. Uh, It's called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. And what it does is give a special sort of immunity to tort lawsuits to the gun industry, the gun manufacturers and sellers. That's the last form of quote unquote gun regulation that we've engaged with. Um, even under during, you know, during during President Obama's presidency, there were no major federal gun legislation. Uh, there was no uh, major federal gun legislation passed tightening restrictions. So the fact that we're even talking about and having hearings about doing this at the at the national level, I think, is, is what's notable about the current moment. I, I mean, it, it, it uh, I guess there must be from people outside of America, there must be confusion over 
how the Second Amendment is interpreted uh, when it comes to these fights, because it's always held up uh, by lawmakers as as sort of as the beacon. Uh, but what what is it? What are what are the common misconceptions about the Second Amendment Amendment that you see from people in other countries like the the Brits or us? Or... Well, I would say it's a if there's misconceptions in the United States too, widespread. Right. Um, and one is exactly the one you described, which is that, you know, that there, there's sort of a, I think a, a fear among gun violence prevention advocates, that is people who want to further regulate guns. There's a fear that the second amendment is some kind of, you know, insuperable obstacle. This is like, you know, the, the thing that's holding us back from having further gun regulation. When the fact is that, you know, the, it's not that courts are striking down gun regulation under the second amendment. So we're just not passing gun regulation in the first place. Um, even in the last 13 years, which have seen a real resurgence in uh, Second Amendment law, thanks to a major Supreme Court case, um, uh, there, there really hasn't been a lot of action in the courts in terms of striking down gun laws. It's just that they don't get passed. And likewise, I think, um, you know, gun rights advocates or those who oppose gun regulation are too quick to claim that the Second Amendment is some kind of invincible champion and that the right to keep and bear arms is immune to regulation. That's just not how constitutional rights work. Even in the United States with a sort of thoroughly infused rights culture, uh, the Supreme Court was very clear in its major decision in the Heller case in 2008 that the Second Amendment right, like all rights, subject to various forms of regulation. I'm speaking with Joseph Bloker. He's a law professor at Duke University in North Carolina, co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. We're talking about a push, certainly in Washington federally, uh, for gun laws uh, in the U.S. at the state level as well. A divergence, of course, between states that may loosen restrictions versus states that may look to toughen them following a spate of high profile uh, and horrific mass shootings in the U.S. Coming up a bit more about a Supreme Court case that we're getting ready to hear a decision on uh, that could have a big impact, perhaps one of the most uh, Syria or most important uh, gun control decisions in a long time. We'll find out more about that after this. Speaking with Joseph Bloker, he's a law professor at Duke University in North Carolina and co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. We've been talking about uh, the aftermath of both Uvalde and Buffalo mass shootings, as well as a spate of mass shootings over this past weekend as well in the U.S. again. Uh, and also just the reaction from lawmakers, uh, Professor Bloker saying that there is more pressure, at least more movement we're seeing, more momentum in Washington to pass some sort of gun uh, legislation. Uh, you did mention, of course, the you know the courts versus, versus politics. Uh, the Supreme Court is is getting ready to deliver a very important uh, decision on gun control. What is it? it? It's based in New York State. Yeah, this is a, this is the case coming out of New York State. The official title is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, we don't know exactly when it's going to be handed down. The court doesn't say ahead of time when uh, when its decisions will come down, but we do know it will be announcing some decisions on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. So we could be getting a decision from the court really soon. The challenge focuses on a New York law which um, r- regulates the concealed carrying of handguns in public. If you want to carry a handgun in public in New York, you're not allowed to do it openly, which means you have to do it concealed. And in order to do it concealed, you have to get a permit. And in order to get a permit, you have to convince a licensing official that you have good cause. Uh, What that means is that you have some kind of elevated need for self-defense above and beyond the average person. Uh, And the petitioners in this case argue that violates their right to keep and bear arms, that um, the the Supreme Court has already held there's a fundamental constitutional right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense. But the amendment says 
keep and bear. And that means it has to extend outside the home as well. And this restriction is simply uh, uh, is to uh, violates that, that, that part of the right. Um, I think uh, that for those of us who follow the oral argument and have followed the case closely, I think um, it's a fair bet that this law, at least in its current iteration, is going to be struck down. That is that the Supreme Court's going to find that it does violate the Second Amendment. And the big question that we're all kind of wondering about is what the basis for that holding will be and really how, how broadly it will reach. In this case, this could mean states that have passed laws, and I gather there are several others who have passed laws restricting who can carry a concealed weapon, that those would would automatically be in peril as well. I think that's exactly right. I mean, these are what we call public carry laws, and they really are. This is just about, you know, what what are the restrictions for if you want to carry your gun in public? If you want to have it in home, it's a totally different, totally different story. But Right now, those laws fall into basically three major categories. There are the states that are called May issue states. New York is one of these, where if you want to carry a gun in public, you have to convince a licensing official who's got some kind of discretion, essentially, to give you the permit, you know, that you've got good cause or proper cause. And the states have kind of different statutes, uh, statutory definitions here. But that includes some pretty big states. It's not just New York, California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland, Hawaii, Delaware, Connecticut, Washington, D.C. covers about a quarter of the American population lives in states that have these kinds of laws. Then there are what are called shall issue laws. Uh, There's about 20 states that have these. Uh, In shall issue states, there's no discretionary decision making by the licensing official. You just check enough, check off the boxes correctly, like you've done a training course or whatever the restrictions are, then you automatically get your permit. And then the most recent uh, sort of expansion we've seen is in the category of what are called permitless carry states, sort of aptly named. Uh, In those states, you need no permit. Uh, Once you've got your gun, you can carry it in public with no further uh, training or any other kinds of requirements. Um, That's a relatively recent development. Uh, About 30 years ago, only one state, Vermont, was permitless carry. Uh, Now, uh, I think it's 21 or 22 are permitless carry. So big expansion in that category. The irony there, of course, being I'm being from from Eastern Canada, I spent quite a bit of time in Vermont and you rarely did you see people carrying guns around, at least on the streets of, say, you know, Burlington. Um, You know, when when one looks at the stats and, you know, in 2020, I think it was 45,000 Americans died of gun related wounds. Half of those, of course, were uh, were suicides. But one it's hard to imagine why allowing more people to carry concealed weapons would be a good idea. It's really interesting. And, and, you know, the, the gun death number that you mentioned there, 45,000, that's, that's, that's an all-time high uh, for recent years. Um, and the growth has really been in gun homicides. The gun suicides still account for, depending on the year, about two-thirds of gun deaths. But the gap is closed. The last two years have seen an enormous um, uh, uh, growth in, in gun homicides. And those, I should say, are especially concentrated in um, minority communities. Um, uh, uh, young black men ages 15 to 34 account for about 2% of the U.S. population, about 38% of our gun homicide deaths. So this is not a, these are not costs that are being evenly distributed uh, across the population. Now, as far as the policy question of like, well, how is more guns in public going to help with anything? Um, you know, there are empirical studies on both sides of this. Um, gun rights advocates will tell you, um, you know, they'll invoke the famous uh, more guns, less crime thesis that, you know, if there are more guns in public, people will be able to better to defend themselves. Criminals will be deterred. They're not going to attack a crowd, not knowing who's concealed. Others will argue in response, you know, you're very, very unlikely ever to use your gun successfully in self-defense. In fact, you're much more likely to have it taken from you uh, and used either against you or against someone else or to be used accidentally, um, uh, you know, against somebody who actually didn't present a threat. And I'll just say there's dueling studies on that. From a from a constitutional perspective, I think the, our, the question is, well, well, who gets to decide when you have that kind of political debate or policy um, uh, debate? And the broader the Supreme Court makes its holding in this New York case, the less room there will be for 
politically accountable branches to make those kinds of decisions. That is, the court's going to take some of those policy arguments off the table, and that's what that'll constrict uh, the political space. So you're really looking to see what the justices, if in fact they do lean uh, towards striking down the New York law in, in, in either in part or in whole, you're really looking to see what kind of language they use. Because I gather the, one of the reasons for the court challenge was the language in the initial law was quite broad as well. Um, the justices are considering adopting a new, an entirely new framework for evaluating the constitutionality of gun laws uh, under this new framework. Uh, laws constitutionality would be evaluated solely based on text history and tradition. Um, I filed a brief in this New York case, <laughs> as just in the interest of full disclosure, arguing this would be a very bad idea, uh, because although there is ample historical evidence for gun regulation in the United States, as is elsewhere, it just doesn't lend itself to very good rulemaking. Um, that is, you know, we currently have a law that prohibits you having a loaded gun in the cabin of an airplane. Um, but if you look back to 1791, you unsurprisingly will find no such law. Joseph Wilker, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight. Thank you so much, Ben.